There you go. That's chapter six of Joshua. Uh, I was half expecting some of you to jump up and start singing and dancing along. I'm glad you didn't. Uh, now, that's a great song, but it is fundamentally flawed. It's flawed in the fact that it said Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and by implication that Joshua won the battle of Jericho, he didn't. God won the battle of Jericho. Now, that doesn't mean that Joshua didn't have a part to play. God, in his mercy and his sovereignty, called Joshua into this partnership with him, into this relationship with him, to achieve the victory that he had won. But it was God who won the battle of Jericho. Um, You know, there was once an elephant and an ant, and they came, they both arrived at this bridge, this uh, rope bridge crossing two valleys, and uh, they both wanted to get across, but the ant looked at it and said, there's no possible way I can get across this rope bridge. And the elephant said, well, I can jump on my back and we'll go across together. So the ant jumped on the elephant's back and they go and the elephant takes a step and the bridge starts swaying from one side to the other and it starts rocking and shaking. And the ant stands up on the elephant's back and goes, wow, can you see what I'm doing? Look how I'm shaking and moving the bridge. Aren't I amazing? And the elephant just smiled. You know, we can be like that ant. We can think that we are doing the moving and the shaking, and it all depends on us. But we forget that we're in the hands of a mighty God who is actually the one doing the moving and the shaking. So just to set the scene, the Israelites have now, if they've been promised, they've now entered Canaan. And the very first battle, the very first obstacle that they come up against is Jericho. Now, Jericho was not a very big city. Like archaeologists tell us, it was only about seven acres, so you could easily walk around the city. But what Jericho was, was more of a fortress. It had these thick walls that surrounded Jericho, so thick that people built their houses into the wall. So it was designed to resist any siege. No one was able to to defeat Jericho because they couldn't get into Jericho. Now, verse 1 tells us in chapter 6 that Jericho was securely shut up. No one was going in. No one was going out. They had heard that the, the children of Israel were coming in, and so they had closed the doors, but they were watching. They thought to themselves, well, we're, we're safe behind our fortress. And from a human perspective, and certainly from the Israelites' perspective, they looked at this and thought, this is impossible. You know, maybe, maybe we can look to Joshua. He's, he's a military man. He's very inexperienced. But maybe Joshua can, can help us out here. You know, if Joshua can rely on his strength and his skill, maybe, maybe we can defeat Jericho. But Joshua doesn't do that. Joshua chooses to fight God's battle God's way, and he does that by listening and obeying the Lord, even when it seems crazy. You see, if Israel could defeat Jericho, their very first obstacle, then they could defeat anything else that they faced in the land of Canaan. And Jericho was like this bottleneck. If you could get through Jericho, then strategically they would be into the promised land and were able to military conquer it. But they had to get past Jericho. And in this, you see God's wisdom. 
that he gives them the toughest battle first up. First up. Uh, there were two coaches, and they were discussing their, their pre-season strategy. And the one coach said, well, the strategy that always works, this is the right thing to do, is uh, what you do is you get your team, and you find a really weak opposition. And then you, get, you play them, and you absolutely crush them. And then you, you feel good, it's an easy win, it builds up confidence. And he turned to the other coach and said, well, what do you do? And he said, actually, I do the complete opposite. I get them to face their toughest opponent. I find an opponent that's really, really, really tough. So that they know exactly what the standard is, who they're going to be up against, what they have to do. You know, and for many of us, we are facing a new season. Life is changing. Maybe we're starting a new job. Maybe we're starting a new school, university. Maybe it's a ministry position. And you might feel like you've walked into this and the very first thing you face is tough. It's hard. And instead of just seeing the problem and like, why is it so difficult? Rather see it as God's grace to you. That he's allowing you to take you through the most difficult thing so that you'll learn to trust him in all things. Now before we look at Joshua, we need to look at the promises of God. Because the whole background to the story rests on the promises of God. And it's true for us. In our walk with the Lord, both as individuals and both as a church, what we, our backdrop is always going to be the promises of God. The promise of God that He will never leave us nor forsake us, that is our rock. The promise that He has plans to prosper us, not to harm us. And above all, the plan that God is faithful, a promise that we hold on to. Now, in verse 2, God gives Joshua this promise. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. I have given Jericho. Right? From God's perspective, the battle is already over. It's already over. Joshua, the battle's won, right? It's in the perfect tense. It is completed. The job is done. All you need to do is go in and take it. So we have the promise of God, but then we have the faith of Joshua. He had heard this promise. He had heard the plan, and now he had to respond in faith. Now, wouldn't you just love to have been part of that conversation when God calls Joshua and gives him the plan. I mean, could you imagine, Joshua, my boy, come, come up here. Let, come and listen. I've got a plan how we're going to take down Jericho. You see, you see that fortress over there called Jericho? Yes, yes, see it? Very scared of it. Well, don't be. It's yours. It's defeated. And Joshua's like, awesome, God. That's amazing. How are you going to do it? Uh, fire from heaven, maybe hailstorm. What, what are you going to do? And God's like, mm, no, Joshua, no. This is how we are going to do this, right? You're going to march around that city. You're going to send out your priests with the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to lead the way. And all they're going to have in their hand is a trumpet. And then the rest of you are going to follow. And you're going to march around Jericho once a day in silence for six days. And then on the seventh day, you're going to march around seven times. And at the end of that seven times, you're going to stop. You're going to shout. And you're going to blow a trumpet. 
and the walls are just going to collapse. And then they're going to form this little ramp, and your soldiers are going to be able to go in and take the city. But not Rahab, right? Don't touch Rahab. I've got my hands on Rahab. She's going to be fine. But you guys are just going to go in and take the city. Imagine Joshua like, Lord, that, that's the plan? Like, that, that's it? That's, that's, and the Lord is like, yep, that's the plan, Joshua. Now, from a method of warfare, it makes absolutely no sense at all, right? You're not going to find this in any military textbook. It's never been done before. But the reason God did it that way was to make sure that they had total dependence upon him. They couldn't rely on their past experience. They couldn't rely on their skill. They had to rely on God. But it also meant that Joshua had great faith, right? He had to obey, and he had to obey quickly. It wasn't a case of Joshua could say, well, that sounds, can I go and pray about this, and then I'll get back to you? It was like, no, he had to believe, and he had to trust, and he had to obey, and he had to obey straight away. There wasn't a plan B. Now, he had to be convinced and trust the Lord. But then he also had to convince the nation to follow his plan. Right? It, I mean, could you imagine? It required pretty great faith from the elders and the leader of Israel. You know, Joshua had heard from the Lord, but they heard from Joshua, this is the plan, this is the way we're going to do it. Now, this is actually a great insight into leadership here, right? In those moments where your leader comes up with a great plan and you agree, you think this is a great direction, it's easy to follow. What is not so easy is when your leader comes up with mm, a plan that you think, oh, that's, I don't think that's going to work, but you follow anyway. That's true leadership. In 1950, there was a war being fought in the Philippines uh, between a, a communist rebellion that had, had sprung up uh, and the government. And they asked America to come in and help, and America sent in their best troops with the best knowledge and the best skill to go and, and kind of sort this out. And when they got there, the battle was being fought in the jungles of the Philippines, and the Americans were really struggling. They were losing troops, this guerrilla warfare, they didn't understand the jungle, and they were really struggling. Until one day, the commander of the American forces had heard that the rebels were very superstitious, and they believed in a vampire known as the Aswang. And so he came up with this plan. He said, uh, all right, I've got to go in and find the friendly locals, and he spread this rumor that the Aswang, the vampire, was living up in the hills. Then what they did is they set up an ambush, and they waited for a patrol to come past, and then the very last man to come past, they adopted him. And they poked two holes in his neck, and they drained him of blood, and they left his body on the trail. Well, the rebels found his body, freaked out, thought there really is a vampire, and they fled the area, and it allowed the government forces to reclaim the whole area, and they never had a problem again. Now, that is a true story. But imagine you're a soldier right? You're trained, you've got the best knowledge in, in, in military warfare, and your boss comes to you, and he says, guys, the way we're going to win this war is 
We're going to pretend there's a vampire. You're like, yeah, go on. Okay. Now, that might have caught massive doubt. The troops follow. But that is not Joshua's attitude. What we see in Joshua is a man of faith and trust in God. He responds because he knows who God is. He knows God is with him. And the very first thing God tells Joshua to do is a reminder that God is with him. He tells Joshua, take up the Ark of the Covenant. Right? The Ark is key in this victory. Because what it would do, it was the very first thing that they sent out. It was if, as if God was saying, Joshua, I want everybody, Israel, your heart and mind to be focused on me. You are going to be tempted to look at your enemy, look at the situation, but forget that you need to focus heart and mind on me. Guys, in the battles that we face, do we have our hearts and minds focused on the Lord? Or sometimes are we just so focused on our situations or our surroundings that we just fail to see Him? It's so easy to do. And remember, this this was no easy task for Israel, right? It sounds easy. Like, just walk around and it'll be fine. But imagine you're Israel, right? And you're told you've got to walk around, around Jericho, this famous fortress with men of valor, and you're going to be seen in broad daylight. There's nowhere to hide. And if you're a priest... All you've got is a trumpet in your hand, and the enemy can see you. You're in plain sight. They can attack at any time. It must have taken incredible courage of Israel to follow through. Guys, it takes courage to follow God. It takes courage to follow God. In, in the very first chapter of this book, in the very first chapter, the very thing as God prepares Joshua to go in, He tells Joshua, and the people tell Joshua, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. You're going to need it. To follow me, you need to be strong and courageous. If Joshua in his day needed to be strong and courageous, how much more so do we need to be reminded of that? It takes courage to follow God. Be strong and courageous. Another thing that Israel had to do, they had to be filled with patience and trust. I mean, could you imagine, for the first six days, each day, you march around the city once, and nothing happens. Nothing happens. It seems like there is no real, no progress is taking place. The walls are not starting to crack. The soldiers are not becoming weary and tired. Nothing seems to be changing. I don't know if you've ever felt that when you're praying about something. And you pray and you pray and you pray and it feels like absolutely nothing is happening. Absolutely nothing's happening. You know, in those moments, we're called persist and trust. Maybe, maybe, just around the corner, your redemption lies, and God is going to move and act. So we see 
the promise of God. Everything is based on the promise and trust in God. We see Joshua act in faith to that promise. And here we see the blessings of obedience, the blessing of following God. Day seven arrives. Can you imagine the anticipation in the camp? What is going to happen today? In verse 20, it says this. It says, so the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Uh, Now, I wish I could shout and blow a trumpet for you today, but I was afraid that the walls might come tumbling down. Okay, I tried that joke at 9 o'clock, and it didn't work, and I shouldn't have done it at 11. But anyway, that was a bad joke. Forget it. Some of you will get it maybe later. Uh, Humor me. But anyway, what some of you might be thinking is that, yeah, right, they they just fell down. You know, surely, surely it's just a story, like a nice Old Testament story that we tell in Sunday school, but it didn't, it didn't really happen, right? It might have a nice lesson and a nice moral lesson from it, but, but surely it didn't happen. You know, and, and even if it did happen, I can explain it because, uh, and this is true, this has been said, that, that the vibration from the, the principle of vibration, as, as the priest blew the trumpet, and it resonated at the right sort of pitch with the wall, and that caused the walls to crumble down, right? The same way as an opera singer sings at a certain pitch and is able to break a glass, that explains Jericho. Well, the truth is, we don't know. But what we do know is that a miracle did occur for this reason. God made a promise. He gave instructions And it happened just as he said it would. And if that isn't enough, we have archaeological... Did I just make that word up? That's not a real word, is it? Archaeology. Archaeology tells us that uh, it happened. So the first major excavation in Jericho was in 1907 to 1909 by a German team. They came on. They had very sort of primitive tools and equipment, and they started excavating the old city of Jericho. And what they found was these piles of mud bricks. But they thought, well, that doesn't really tell us anything. But then in 1950, a British British archaeologist named Kathleen Kenyon, she re-excavated the site, and she had these modern methods. And finally, she understood what the bricks were for. And she determined, get this, guys, She determined they were from the city wall, which had collapsed when the city was destroyed. But what is even more is that according to the Bible, when the Israelites came in and took the city, they set it on fire. And this is what she said in her report, her excavation report. She said the destruction was complete. Walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire, and every room was filled with fallen bricks timbers, household utensils. In most rooms, the fallen debris was heavily burnt. And then they ask, so what do you think caused the strong walls of Jericho to collapse? I said, well, the most likely explanation 
is an earthquake. But it would have to have been a very, very unique and, and, and really strange, unusual earthquake. Because it, it happened in such a way that the, all the walls of Jericho collapsed, except for this small portion in the northern side of the city. Now get this, guys. Rahab's house was evidently located on which side of the city? The northern side of the city. God won the battle of Jericho. He is real. He is the God of history. He interacts with real people, real time, real places. And the walls fell flat. Imagine, no other city had ever been conquered this way. Right? Israel... We can't look to ourselves. We can't think we came up with this great idea. All they had was the promise of God. But they believed that promise and they acted in faith. Guys, the truth is at City Reach, all we have, all we have are the promises of God. And that is enough. That is enough. I don't know about you, but we really shouldn't be. We shouldn't be surprised when God fulfills his promises, right? But, but I am. Every time he does it, it's like God promised this, and then he does it, and I'm surprised, and I really shouldn't be. But I wonder, for the Israelites, right, were they surprised when they saw the walls come tumbling down? Like, oh my goodness, he's done it again. He said he would, and he's done it again. Now, if we ended there, we possibly go home, we feel good, but there is a part of the story which makes us feel uncomfortable, makes me feel uncomfortable. It's this part where after the walls came tumbling down, it says they utterly destroyed the city and everyone in it. Now, why was Israel commanded to do such a thing, right? What's such complete destruction? Isn't this a bit harsh? Now, in order to answer that question, we need to go back and look at the people of Canaan, right? The Canaanite people. What were they like? And if we go back to Deuteronomy, and we're looking in chapter 18, it says this. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. What were the abominations of those nations? There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through fire. These were people that sacrificed their children in fire. It goes on to say, or one who practices witchcraft, soothsaying, one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out before you. The Canaanites, they sacrificed their children. They dealt in witchcraft. They were heavily into the occult. They did evil after evil after evil. You see, the Lord is not, not random or he's unfair here. In fact, he's incredibly, incredibly patient with them. 
If you go back to Genesis, when God's talking to Abram before he renames him and sends him, he says this to him. Now, Abram is in Canaan. He's in Canaan at this moment. He says, Abram, you are going to go down to Egypt, and you're going to be there 400 years. 400 years. Now, why 400 years? He said, in that time, your people are going to be afflicted. They're going to cry out to me. I'm going to hear their cry, and I'm going to bring them out of Egypt, and I'm going to bring them back to Canaan. Now, this is what it says. It says, and they shall come back in here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God waited 400 years before he dealt with them. 400 years for them to turn. But finally, his judgment came. You see, God's judgment isn't all sorted out by next Tuesday. But that doesn't mean that he's not going to judge. But he is incredibly patient. He's not wanting any to perish, but all to come to a knowledge of who he is. You see, to us, sometimes God's judgment can seem harsh. Because it is harsh. And when we understand why it's harsh, is because we, we don't really understand what sin is to a holy and righteous God. If we don't understand how God feels about sin, how he sees sin, then we will never truly understand the cross and why it is the supreme display of love and mercy that it is. You see that a righteous God, totally pure, totally devoid of any possibility of evil, would welcome me, a sinner, knowing everything that I've done and thought and said, that he would welcome me, that he would die for me on a cross, that he'd take my sin onto himself. But not only that, he would give me his righteousness. That is amazing. You see, because God is holy, and because he's holy, he does have to judge sin. He will judge evil. So we can't just do what we like and think we'll get away with it. We can't just think, well, no one ever seems. It's not really a big deal. Hebrews 4.13 says this. It says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account an account. Everything you've done, everything I've done, the Lord has seen. Everything you've thought, everything you, shouldn't, you should have done and you didn't do, He's seen it all. Now that verse should cause us to tremble, knowing that one day we have to stand before a holy God and give an account of our lives. But what it does do is it causes us to throw ourselves at His grace and say, Lord, I need that cross I need that cross for me. I need my sins to be forgiven. I need to come before you and receive your mercy. Receive your grace. You know, he offers us that forgiveness. He offers it right here in this story. Right here in Joshua is a picture of God's mercy and grace. We see it in, in verses 22 to 25. It says this, he sends in two men. He said, go, go to the prostitute's house. Go to Rahab's house and you get her out. 
all her, her, her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belong to her, you get her out. And then you burn the city, you destroy everything, but you make sure that you get her out. Right? You can use the gold and the silver and the, and the vessels of bronze and iron for the, for the treasury, but you get Rahab, the prostitute, out of that city. And it says Joshua saved Rahab. God saved Rahab. And then it's got this nice little bit. It says, and she has lived in Israel to this day. Right there you get this picture of judgment and salvation. They burned the city, but Rahab was saved. You see, all Jericho had heard about the God of Israel. All Jericho had heard about the God of Israel. You can read about that in chapter 2 of Joshua. But only Rahab responded in faith. Only Rahab put her trust towards him. You know, and, and was it that maybe she was more righteous than the rest of the people living in, in Jericho? Maybe she was more morally superior and that's why God had mercy on her? She was a prostitute. She was a prostitute. She is labeled the prostitute. So certainly it wasn't her righteousness that saved her. It was her faith in the God of Israel and his power to save. And I love this little bit. It just says, <coughs> she dwells in Israel to this day, right? This means that it was a written account. It was written for the Israelites. I want you to know this is not a made-up story. This is not a nice story to tell us how we came in. It's a real story with real people and a real God. And by the way, when you see Rahab walking around the camp, yeah, this is her story. This is how she came to be one of our people, how she put her faith in the God of Israel, and now she belongs to the people of God. So they took the city. They took the city. God had given them Jericho, and it was clear that God gave it to them. But Israel took it by being obedient and by being, having faith in God. Um, I once heard of a preacher who started his sermon like this. Uh, he got out a big slab of chocolate, and he put it on the pulpit. And he said, that is for the first child who will come and take it. And then he just dives straight into his sermon, right? And no one got up and come to I was actually thinking about starting that way today, but the problem is I like chocolate, and it might not make it to the pulpit. So I decided not to do it. But his point was that he's given it to us. It's ours. All we have to do is come and take it. Guys, it's the same with, with all victory in the Christian life. God has given it to us in Jesus, right? All promises in Jesus are yes and amen, but it is through faith and obedience that we take them. Joshua does this really weird thing at the end of the story. He curses the man who would rebuild Jericho. This is what it says. It said, Joshua laid on oath on them at the time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundations, and at the cost of his younger son shall he set up its gates. Now, the sad thing is, is that was fulfilled in 1 Kings chapter 16. There was a guy named Hael, 
who decided to rebuild Jericho. And as he laid its foundation, his firstborn son died. And he didn't stop. He carried on. He built the gates. As soon as he put up his gates, his youngest son died. And it says this, this happened according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Guys, the battles the Lord wins for us, the stuff he destroys for us, the stuff he rescues us from, maybe it's, it's an addiction, maybe it's, it's unhealthy relationships, maybe it's, it's patterns or, or sin in our life that he rescues us from. He doesn't want us to rebuild them. He loves us. He cares for us. He doesn't want us to go back. You know, we all have this temptation to rebuild something that the Lord has destroyed for us. In the church I used to be a part of in Hong Kong, there was a young man, and his temptation and something really he struggled with, he was always looking for a relationship, right? He, he had to find meaning. If he, if he didn't have a girlfriend, there was something missing in his life, and he always looked to have a girlfriend for validation of who he was. And he would always tend to go looking in places he shouldn't look. And he, he was involved with a girl he shouldn't have been dating, and it was a mess. But really, by, by God's grace, he came out of that relationship, and he was healed from it. And for the next three years, actually grew. He became spiritually mature. He had real, real fruit from his life, blessing from his life. But about three years later, he tried to rebuild what the Lord had torn down. And he went looking for a relationship again. He met a girl who wasn't a Christian. They got met, they, she fell pregnant. She gave birth to a little boy, and then she disappeared. She took their son with her, and she disappeared back to her home country. He had lost her, he had lost his son, and he was a broken, broken man. If he had just left what the Lord said, it's destroyed, don't go back. Now, in all that, there is mercy, there is grace, there is forgiveness. You know, the greatest battle that ever needed to be fought was not against Jericho. It's not against some evil superpower out there. No, the greatest battle that needed to be fought was against sin and death. And here's the good news, guys. That battle has already been fought, and the battle has already been won. Jesus won it on the cross, right? The most unlikely battle plan. How do you plan on defeating sin and death? Psychologists have been trying for years and years and years and years since the beginning of mankind to try and solve this problem. How do we defeat death and evil in this world? And Jesus came up with this battle plan. I'm going to die on the cross. That's how I'm going to defeat sin and death. I'm going to take death and sin into me. And three days later, I'm going to rise to life. The battle's going to be won for you. And all you need to do is by faith to come and take it. You know, there might be some of us sitting here today where you've, you've heard the Christian message. You've heard about this baby being born in Bethlehem. Maybe you've heard about Jesus dying on a cross. 
And you've heard about him being raised to life three days later, but you're still unsure. You're like, yeah, that's it's just not for me. If it works for you, it works for you, but yeah, it's not for me. Guys, I want you to know Jesus is real. God is real. His victory that he won on the cross is real. And he won it for you. <laughs> he just wants you to come to the cross. Come and bring your sin, bring your shame, bring your guilt, and he will give you life. He will give you his righteousness. We would love to talk to you about that. If you've got questions about that or you're wondering about that, we would love to chat to you. You know, everyone in this room has a story. All of us, at some point, we're broken. None of us are more righteous than anyone else. All of us need the grace of God. But we found it in Jesus. And all of us can testify to the fact that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Now, there might be other of us sitting here, and you know what the Lord is telling you what you need to do, but you're afraid. You're afraid. The walls just look too big. That fortress looks impenetrable. I want you to remind you that Jesus has already won the battle, and he would say to you, take your eyes off the difficulties, take your eyes off the circumstance, and focus on me. Focus on me. He is the one who fights for you. He is the one who intercedes for you. And then there might be some of us who are really struggling with this. We're trying to rebuild what the Lord has torn down. We're trying to go back to the things that he's already won for us. He tore it down for a reason. He loves you. He really does have plans to prosper you, not to harm you, and he doesn't want you to go back. Will you turn to him and will you trust him? What we're going to do now is worship this God who fights for us, who's won the biggest battle that we could ever need to face. We don't have the fear of death anymore. The sting of death is gone, and it's gone because of Jesus. And we take that through faith in him. So will you stand with me? I'd love to pray with us. And then let's worship the Lord Jesus. Our Holy Father, Lord, we tremble at the thought of your holiness that you are absolutely pure, you are absolutely righteous, Lord. And Lord, I know that me, on my own, could never stand before you. And yet I know that I must give an account of my life. Lord, I can only do that because of the victory that Jesus won, his blood that allows me to be forgiven of my sin and clothed with your righteousness. Lord, we thank you that we now have entrance into the Holy of Holies, that we can know you, that we can fellowship with you. Father, I pray for us, Lord. I pray that as we go out into this week, where we know that you are a God who fights our battles for us, who intercedes for us, that if you are for us, who can be against us? 
Lord, I pray that you give us the courage we need to walk faithfully with you, to live lives worthy of the calling that you've given us. Lord, to be courageous, to share Jesus with this world that is broken and who needs the forgiveness of a Savior. Lord, we love you. We throw ourselves in your grace again today. In Jesus' name.